Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining this Heritage Foundation webinar on treating COVID-19, supporting front lines with real-time information. My name is Nina Ocherenko Schaefer, and I am a Senior Research Fellow in Health Policy at the Heritage Foundation. In April, the Heritage Foundation launched the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission to provide the American people and policymakers with recommendations to move toward recovery. As part of its recommendations, the Commission has highlighted the importance of frontline clinicians sharing emerging, emerging information about the virus in real time. Today, we will discuss what frontline clinicians are currently observing with the COVID-19, how these new understandings are changing their treatment of the disease, and what policymakers could do to help frontline clinicians better communicate this information to other clinicians and to move more quickly to update best practices. Before we get started, I'd like to cover a few housekeeping items. First, all attendees are in listen-only mode. Second, we welcome and encourage your questions. They can be submitted through the questions box on your GoToWebinar dashboard. And finally, this session is being recorded and it will be emailed and posted on heritage.org events within 48 hours. Now it's my pleasure to introduce to you Bob Moffitt, Senior Fellow in Health Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Since April, Bob has led a group of clinicians to help advise the Commission on its recommendation. Bob, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Nina. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this special uh, webinar on a vitally important subject, which is how physicians are battling the virus on the front lines. As Nina mentioned, Heritage Foundation President Kay James is chairing an independent National Coronavirus Recovery Commission with 17 top experts from academia, business, and the healthcare sector of the economy. In assisting that effort, Heritage pulled together an advisory group of medical professionals, including one of our guests today, Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald, who is a former director of the CDC, as well as Dr. Daniel Johnson, former president of the American Medical Association. The commission adopted a key recommendation of our advisory group, and that is that the CDC improve the rapid flow of clinical information and facilitate a timely communication among physicians who are on the front line battling this virus, not only to improve their understanding of the disease, but also learning how to treat it. The recommendation grew out of a briefing from our second guest today, Dr. Thomas Yadigar from Providence Cedar Sinai Medical Center in California. On April 7th of this year, Dr. Terrence McGuire, 
prominent Maryland physician who previously published on viral infections alerted me to Dr. Yadigar's work in California, particularly his finding that COVID-19 patients can generate a severe and deadly autoimmune response and that proper treatment could save countless lives. Dr. Yadigar briefed Heritage's medical advisory group and we trans transmitted that information to the commission and also to senior officials at the Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Yadigar is the medical director of the intensive care unit, a group of 20 physicians at Providence Senior Sinai Medical Center in Tarzana, California. He received his doctorate in medicine from the University of Southern California and his bachelor's from UCLA. Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald was the 17th director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and also served as a commissioner, the commissioner of public health for the state of Georgia. She received her doctorate in medicine from Emory University, her bachelor's from Georgia State University, and she is a proud, uh, proud uh, veteran. She is, was in the state Air Force. Right now, I'll turn this over to my friend and a, and a great colleague, uh, a new, 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 newfound colleague, Dr. Thomas Gadigar. Thank you. Hi, uh, good afternoon, and uh, thank you, uh, Bob, for that uh, fantastic introduction. Uh, I want to personally thank the Heritage Foundation for giving me this opportunity uh, to share my experiences in uh, treating patients with uh, COVID-19. Um, I think my main takeaway point for all the listeners, and especially any of the physicians that are frontline physicians that are listening, is that uh, this virus, the SARS-CoV-2, um, you can cause the disease COVID-19, but it's actually causing two distinct clinical syndromes. The first, um, as we all know, is an infectious disease, which is directly related to the virus. Uh, but more importantly is the second syndrome, which is an immune-mediated disease, wherein the virus activates the patient's immune system. And in a subset of these patients, the immune system goes haywire. And instead of the immune system attacking uh, the virus, the immune system turns and starts attacking the patient's um, vital organs. Um, let me uh, elaborate a little bit more into these two clinical syndromes. Um, by this time, everyone in the world knows that the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19. Uh, this virus is a respiratory virus, and similar to influenza, it can cause pneumonia as well as respiratory failure. Uh, this uh, feature distinguishes it from other viruses that cause the common cold. The symptoms that the patients have during the first week of their illness are the results of this infectious disease syndrome. Uh, the vast majority of the patients do improve, although there's uh, 15 to 20 percent that get sick enough where they need to seek medical attention and subsequently become hospitalized. Within this group of patients who get uh, very ill, there is another subset of patients where this immune-mediated disease manifests itself. In these patients, instead of the immune system becoming activated and working in a coordinated uh, concerted fashion to kill the virus, the immune system again goes awry. Now the patient's own immune system, which is designed to protect the body, is attacking the patient's healthy vital organs and slowly killing the patient. This is a delayed reaction and it usually manifests itself after the first week. So usually in the, uh, usually in the uh, seven to 10 days after the patient start having symptoms. This is not an unusual reaction. We've known that other viruses can cause these types of reactions, these uh, immune-mediated responses. 
But uh, what's different is that SARS-CoV-2 is exceedingly proficient in inducing this immune-mediated uh, response, and it does it in a very efficient manner. The symptoms that the patient feel, uh, fever, cough, shortness of breath, are similar to the virus causing damage. So it's very easy and understandable for the doctors not to be able to differentiate between these two disease states. Um, also, the normal usual tests that we help uh, that we perform to help us differentiate when a patient is very, very sick, um, those are not really sensitive to pick up this uh, immune-mediated disease. Uh, everyone's immune system is as unique to them as their fingerprints. When the immune system goes haywire, uh, not everyone has the same type of response. That's why um, every week we're hearing about a different uh, type of disease that COVID-19 causes whether it's blood clots that uh, don't respond to normal therapy, whether it's a cytokine storm that produces a rapidly progressive respiratory failure, or strokes in young 30, 40, 50-year-old uh, patients that shouldn't have strokes. And I think in the past week, we've heard about um, vasculitis and these types of Kawasaki-like syndromes that are occurring in children, um, which are obviously very, very serious. Now, now I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that there's always a silver lining and I think the most important thing is that once doctors become aware of this immune process, um, there are tests that we do perform um, that let us know that this immune process is occurring. Uh, once it is diagnosed early, and especially once it is treated early and aggressively, it is absolutely treatable. Hopefully this can uh, help us significantly turn the corner on this virus and make it uh, more closely resemble to what we see during a normal uh, influenza season. Uh, thank you very much, and I'll turn it back to Nina. Thank you so much for your your insights and for your frontline work in this in this area. Um, I'm sure many people will find it um, interesting and um, have some good follow-up questions for you as we get into the Q and A part. Now we'll bring in uh, Dr. Fitzgerald. Please join us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. This virus is of a particular importance for two reasons. One is how easy it is to catch the virus. The very first case of COVID-19 was reported in this country January 21st. Only short, four short months later, we now have over 1.5 million cases reported, and we have over 90,000 deaths. What's also been disturbing is in the journals of emerging clinical disease, uh, uh, emerging infectious diseases, there have been a lot of, of small reports that suggest that the virus can be transmitted when the patient doesn't have any symptoms. Uh, for example, in one German case that was reported, uh, there were 14 colleagues that went to uh, a typical business meeting. They, they did normal things like would go in the same cab, there were some handshakes, but right, none of them were symptomatic. Right after that, one of the persons became positive for COVID-19, and subsequently, 11 of those 14 people also became positive. So this whole notion of how easy it is to get the disease is one of the reasons it is so important. The second is um, because of the deadly effect. Certainly, the reports from the Chinese CDC indicate that 81% of the cases of COVID are mild, 
um, and really don't seem to have any kind of bad consequences that we know at this time. But just as Dr. Yadigar reported, there are certain numbers that get very, very sick. In the Chinese studies, five became, 5% 5 of, the, of the population that had the uh, virus became very, very sick. And of those, the Chinese reported that 49% of them died. So this whole business, if we listen to Dr. Yadigar, it certainly seems to indicate that those people that are getting very severely ill may be entering this second phase of the disease. And that if we really understand how to identify and treat this second phase of the disease, quite frankly, we could make a dramatic change in the way, in the survival rates. Um, and the questions I'd like to ask Dr. Yadigar to sort of uh, clarify some of your findings. You talked about the two disease states, um, and you talked about uh, your recognition of the second disease state uh, that you describe as so deadly. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe tell us um, in before your team recognized that, um, the, the kind of um, mortality things you were facing, and is there been any change since you've recognized that uh, change in the disease? Uh, yes, thank you, Brenda. That's an excellent question. Um, there's definitely a difference um, in terms of morbidity um, since we recognize that. The first few weeks, our experience was pretty much the same and similar to everyone else that's on the front line. Uh, the information we got was that when these patients become very, very sick, when they require a lot of oxygen, um, don't use any kind of modality um, to try to preserve them from ending up on a respirator. Um, you know, we were told to intubate them early um, because these patients are going to you know, require uh, intubation eventually. Uh, but within the first few weeks, we noticed that that was actually the wrong thing to do. Um, these patients, when they end up on a respirator, they need prolonged mechanical ventilation. So uh, within a couple of weeks, we had a lot of patients that were ending up on a respirator and we were using a lot of our medications to sedate these patients. Um, this was kind of the experience in New York where they essentially kind of put a lot of people on ventilators and then eventually ran out of ventilators and, you know, ran out of intensive care unit beds and had to, you know, kind of uh, to, to, to alternate. Um, and then that's when we really started looking because, you know, these patients were crashing and it wasn't making sense. You know, in my 20 years of experience, I didn't have a, I, I hadn't seen this type of uh, disease state. And that's when we started looking and we're looking for inflammatory markers. And these are the markers that we don't typically check uh, for. And we saw that those were elevated. And that's when we started treating these patients. Instead of putting them on ventilators, we started, we started treating them with immunosuppressive medications which was very counterintuitive because you have a patient who got admitted to the hospital for a deadly virus, and now instead of boosting their immune system, you have to give them medications to suppress their immune system. And I think that was probably when we saw the, the biggest change. Um, and, you know, since then, we've only had to put very few patients on ventilators. And again, if you diagnose it early and treat it early, you can make a big difference. Thank you. And I know in our report, um, when you were giving us information, you said that your survival rates in your particular hospital following that protocol as compared to some of the surrounding um, areas has been dramatically different. Yeah, so uh, we, we uh, take care of patients in two different local hospitals. 
Um, since uh, COVID-19 uh, broke out in early March, we've taken care of over 260 patients. Uh, 70 of those patients have been in the intensive care unit. Um, we've had 24 patients that have expired out of those 260 patients, uh, but 15 of them were, um, were DN what we call DNR, DNI. They did not want to be resuscitated. Um, we've obviously, uh, the past few weeks, had uh, just like everybody else, had a large outbreak in uh, local nursing homes. Uh, so, you know, uh, if you take out those 15 patients, it would be nine patients out of uh, 260. Each of these hospitals are uh, part of large hospital chains and organizations, and within each of them, uh, we are uh, among the top in terms of our uh, low mortality rates as well as our low ICU utilization. And, and this is uh, excuse me. And I'm sorry. And this is also the fact that. Uh, in neither of these hospitals do we have uh, ECMO available, do we have what we call CRRT for continuous uh, dialysis available, uh, nor do we have prone beds available. So we're, we're doing mechanical prone where our amazing uh, nursing staff, our uh, dedicated respiratory therapists, we go in with a, uh, as a team of six visit, uh, uh, healthcare workers and we manually um, take these patients and we, we, instead of being on their back, we put them on their stomach to help them uh, with their oxygenation. Once there's this transition from the first stage of the virus to the second, how quickly do they deteriorate? You know, everyone is different, and that's the thing that it's been so difficult. Um, you almost have to treat every individual patient differently, um, and what works for the first patient doesn't work for the second patient. So I've had patients where, you know, they rapidly deteriorate within 12 hours, and I've had other ones where they do it slowly over a couple of days. Um, and the treatment also is variable because, again, not everyone has the same immune system um, and the disease that's produced isn't the same. You know, I'm constantly fighting with some of the infectious disease doctors on my team who may want to give the same therapy to every single patient in the ICU. And the hard part about this is, you know, what, what you give to one patient in the ICU will help that patient, but if you give it to the very next patient, it may kill the patient. So you have to go through a very, very rigorous um, evaluation and really, you know, so there the isn't a one thing problem. seems to be that what you need to do is you need to treat aggressively as soon as you recognize it and you absolutely need to understand the disease process. Can you tell us how you've gone about making sure you have the needed lab test? At what point in the disease are you getting the lab test you require? So at this point, um, I've uh, discussed this with our uh, emergency room physicians, and they are uh, very well uh, aware of what lab tests. So as soon as a patient comes in um, and, and requires hospitalization, we uh, order the lab tests. So we have it available at, our, uh, at the very early stage. And then based on their clinical presentation and based on their laboratory, then we'll repeat it, whether it's every day or whether it's every two days. You know, the first thing that I was taught in medical school was, you know, don't be stupid, don't treat a lab, you gotta treat the patients. So, you know, the lab does not uh, answer all the questions. You have to still assess your patient and, and, and see how they're doing clinically, and you have to integrate all the, all the lab values that you have obtained. Absolutely, but for those people out there who are not medical, the important issue here is that when a patient first presents, you not only do the traditional um, cultures for COVID-19, but you also draw the immune markers so that you'll be able to see when those immune markers change, so when it enters the second phase of the disease. So thank you very much, Dr. Yadigar and Nina. 
if you'd like to open it up. Yes, Bob, I'd like to have you join back up with us um, so that we have a variety of questions that are covering um, the whole the whole sphere, both medical questions and real just general everyday questions that people have about about what's what's happened during this. Um, I'd like to start off with my first question uh, that's come in, which is, um, how are physicians sharing this information today? How, what is the way that you are able to communicate to um, those within your hospital or those within your community? What are, the, what are the ways you're trying to get the word out about what you're seeing on the front lines? Uh, Nina, is that a question for myself or is that for, yes. for Brenda? I'm sorry about that. Yes, you go first and then I'll follow. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's probably been the hardest part about this virus. It's such a fast-moving virus, and uh, we're already two weeks behind it. By the time the patient presents, by, you know, we're already seeing it two weeks uh, later than what's going on in the community. Um, it's been difficult and it's been challenging. A lot of this uh, early presentation, a lot of the early information was really kind of um, some emails that we got from physicians in, in Was up in Washington, um, some presentations that the JAMA uh, put online for physicians in Italy, um, but it was it was not through the normal route where you know medical journals and those types of things. Um, there's also a lot of uh, uh, web-based uh, information that gets emailed to us physicians uh, every day. Some of it is useful, but some of it is is not very useful, and it's hard to kind of have enough time as uh, I'm spending, you know, 16, 18 hours a day to try to treat and organize uh, our, our inpatient treatment for these patients. So it's, it's been, it's been def uh, definitely challenging to say the least. Dr. Fitzgerald, would you like to add anything on, on um, how this information is getting communicated? I'd like to speak um, now, um, one of the things that I certainly um, placebo double blind studies have been the gold standard for adding new medical information uh, to the lexicon. Everybody understands that. But in this case where we're facing a, a disease that has killed uh, 90,000 of us in four months, we certainly need to think of a way that is still rigorous that is, that is not just depending on, um, you know, hearsay, but that is rigorous enough that we can make rapid moves in our understanding of the disease. That's why we decided to have this seminar today, because we think that there needs to be a national forum for those people on the front line, like Dr. Yadigar, like those people in New York, uh, like those folks that are in uh, Louisiana, those docs on the front line that are coming to new understanding of this disease, we think we need to spread that information very rapidly. And we think that can be done with enough rigor that we can, that we can have faith in that and know that we can move forward on that medical information. Are there, um, as a follow-up to that, and maybe Bob, you could chime in on this part, are there things, is there, what's the proper role of the government in this sharing of information? and and um, also helping to provide better best practices so that clinicians know what to do um, on the front lines faster. I, I would just add that uh, this is really a function of the Centers for Disease Control. I mean, frankly, 
when they get this kind of clinical information, what they ought to do is they ought to maintain a compendium of this information and at the same time have regular briefings uh, among clinicians on the kind of information that Dr. Yadigar and others are presenting to them on how this disease is developing. The fact of the matter is, uh, several weeks ago, we did not know how any of this actually worked. Uh, Dr. Yadigar, in fact, is one of the first to actually identify, one of the first, certainly, to identify uh, this disease process and the fact that the autoimmune system, uh, this autoimmune response being so severe, was the source of a lot of very, uh, of, of very serious illness and death. Uh, so we're talking about life and death here, and I think it's really critical for the government in a case where we're dealing with a, a novel virus to make sure that on a very, very fast turnaround, regular basis, this kind of information is disseminated uh, to clinicians on the front line on a regular basis. It has to happen uh, because this, it's, not, it's not a time where we can do the kind of, you know, detailed, gold-plated, you know, as, as Dr. Fitzgerald has pointed out, double-blind studies you know, which take a long time. I mean, that's a great academic exercise. We haven't got time for that. Uh, we've got to move fast, and we've got to be able to take advantage of all these new developments. I thought that the New York case, where the five children died, at the first time, the first thing I thought of when I saw that in those newspapers is, my goodness, we had heard about this, basically the same kind of development from Dr. Yadigar back at the very, very beginning of April. And I'm thinking to myself, good Lord, how many people really understand this? I mean, I didn't understand it. And I think most of us who are in health policy, certainly those in public policy do not understand a lot of this. We're dependent upon the medical profession to give us that expertise, but they have to communicate with each other. And that's, again, I don't want to overdo it, but that's where CDC has a primary responsibility and they all really set they really got to step up to the plate on this. I agree with that. Great. Uh, immediately after we posted our webinar, I noticed Medscape is a, is a um, service that comes through, lots of docs read it. Uh, it's emerging trends, emerging information. And I noticed that on Medscape, like tomorrow, Medscape is going to do a webinar on cytokine storm. Uh, the important thing that we need to do is that, what that means is somebody completely separate from Dr. Yadigar's group noticed a similar thing. And if we're going to have, that's the rigor. If we have reliable uh, physicians in different parts of the country that are noticing the same thing, we need a quicker way so we exchange that information. Again, in the last four months, 90,000 Americans have died. And we really need to increase our ability to exchange the clinical information and the clinical observations so that we bring this to a, to a halt. So now we'll shift to another question, a little bit in a, uh, more of a practical question here. Um, if the immunosuppressants if, if immu actually help, why was there so much public discourse about ventilators? And can data help um, help with this kind of um, information moving forward? Perhaps either Dr. Yadigar or Dr. Fitzgerald could, could chime in on that. Dr. Yadigar, you're on the front I'll, lines. Why don't you take that? I'll let Dr. Fitzgerald take this one, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll apply secondly. 
Um, well, I think the first, the, when the disease was first presented, it was presented as a respiratory disease. And because of that, there was a lot, uh, in order to prepare, uh, the medical community started building up respirators because we were thinking in the terms of respiratory disease that we have seen in the past. And that was, that was logical, but then we began to see um, a whole series of things that weren't explained by simple respiratory disease. And I think that I remember very clearly when Dr. Yadigar presented to us, he said, you know, I was, we were having all these things. I, I didn't understand it. So I just got out all the charts and I looked at it and I said, what kind of disease, you said, what kind of disease process presents in this various modalities in all these different ways? And the only thing that made sense was an autoimmune disease. So I think that when we first heard of the disease, it, it came to us uh, as a typical respiratory disease, something like flu, only worse. Um, and it's true that it's 10 times more deadly than flu, but it, it is much more efficient, obviously, in activating this destructive autoimmune response. Great, Dr. Yadigar. And, uh, Nina, I would, I would definitely, uh, I would, yeah, I would definitely second that. Um, you know, so within the first uh, few weeks, again, we were kind of listening to our colleagues from China, from Italy, from up uh, north in Washington state. And we're putting everyone on a respirator that uh, required a lot of oxygen. And, uh, you know, we weren't using the measures, that the conservative measures to try to prevent people from ending up on respirators. And within about a 10 to 14 day period, we rapidly changed our treatment guidelines uh, to the point that all of a sudden I started getting calls from my respiratory therapist, from the nurses, you know, 10 days ago, you told us that, you know, these patients are very, very contagious and they need to be put on respirators. Why are we using these modalities like high flow, like uh, non-invasive ventilation? So I had to explain it to them that, no, this, you know, putting patients on a ventilator, this isn't, this isn't the therapy for these patients. This is actually just making the disease worse. And we had to quickly backtrack and change to where we treated the patient's uh, immune disease and not, not their respiratory disease. And I think that's, again, for us, for our institutions, that's where it really made a big difference. In, um, and we've been doing that for over six weeks now. Wonderful. Another question um, is related to, again, sharing of the information. And are you able to share, how are doctors sharing information outside of the construct of their own hospital? Are you, how are you for example, being able to share to the CDC? Are there pathways that um, are available for doctors to share that information directly with the CDC and um, inform their ability to, to design best practices? Um, th there really hasn't been, um, from my personal experience. What I did first initially was I reached out to um, my colleagues in the local hospitals, um, but I came across a lot of resistance um, this is obviously something that's very difficult to explain, even, even to a critical care physician. It's taken me uh, weeks to explain it to the doctors that work with me. Um, but to explain it to other doctors, they really didn't want to hear it from me. Um, they wanted to hear it from the CDC. They wanted to hear it from the NIH. Um, they wanted it to be associated with the randomized control study, which, you know, again, you know, I, I agree with Dr. Fitzgerald. There's always, that's, that's the gold standard, and that's what we should always do in medicine. But when you have such a rapidly moving 
pandemic that's killing so many people, you know, to organize and to perform uh, well-controlled randomized studies takes months and months and months. Um, and, you know, it was very difficult and it's been very challenging and, and um, I haven't been able to get as much traction. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, this webinar with the Heritage Foundation will reach a, a larger group of uh, people. And again, let me emphasize that the whole, the whole idea of having a rigorous discussion, we're not just talking about uh, an antidote. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, you know, just have a national discussion where all the doctors on the front line are able to come together and say, yes, I saw that, or no, I, saw, I thought that at first, but then I found out. Uh, we really need, and that is not really the the way that medicine is usually occurring. Uh, I know certainly in my small hometown, uh, my um, the docs who are infectious disease docs and head of the ICU here, they they've been going on the internet. I mean, on um, you know social media and talking to their colleagues. But we really think that it is important that we have a national discussion for this. And that certainly probably can come under the auspice of the CDC. That's where I would like for it to occur, certainly. Uh, but there needs to be a national discussion. And I realize, again, um, that um, the standardized test, I mean, the random test will occur in the future. But we really need this frontline, clinically important discussion to occur on a national level. Wonderful. Um, another question kind of is looking forward a little bit. Do you see that there might be changes to how the virus presents itself in phase two of uh, perhaps a, a new round that might be coming um, at a later time? And what that might look like if, it, would it be for the best or, or could it get worse? Well, I, I would say that phase twos are actually already here. Um, in phase one, we saw a lot of patients that had community transmission, um, and those presented very differently. Right now, we're getting a lot of patients from nursing homes and assisted living facilities, and their presentation is uh, significantly different. Um, this is not a virus that's going to go away as much as all of us are hoping and praying. Um, I think it's going to be here with us and definitely in the fall. Um, if we're not better prepared, it's going to be much worse. Uh, but I think the presentations are, you know, essentially what we're seeing. I don't think that it's going to rapidly mutate to a different virus altogether. Um, but we're already seeing a lot of different variety of presentations um, in, in patients, and it has to do with whether they're coming from home and um, or whether they're coming from uh, nursing homes and have a lot of other what we call comorbidities like diabetes, heart failure, COPD. Um, so those, I think those are the two different presentations that we're going to see. And the important thing, Nina, is if we have a format where there is a, a national discussion and a continued conversation between those people on the front line, new changes can be rapidly identified. Again, it needs to be rigorous. It needs to have it needs to have checks and balances with with physicians adding their experiences and and being discussed at a level of where some real changes can be made. Um, but I think if if you if if you think of this disease, if you think of this disease um, that is 80% it's mild, 
And then there's this 5% that's critical. And we learn dramatically how to treat those critical patients. It changes the whole discussion. I mean, if you're looking at something that's going to kill 90,000 of us in four months, that's worrisome. If you're looking at something that the vast majority of us survive, that's a whole different dynamic. So I think the fact that the, that the disease is going to be around until we develop the vaccines, and I'm very pleased with all the movement that's occurring in the development of the vaccines, that certainly needs to be done. But this whole business of learning the disease and learning how to treat it in a more, um, in a quicker manner, I think is enormously important. Wonderful. Bob, I wonder if you could um, maybe elaborate a little bit and talk about um, with the balance of understanding that we do believe that doctors and doctors are really on the front lines and other healthcare providers in, in treating these patients. Um, what what are the what is the right role to keep the balance between what the physicians want to do and the information they're sharing, and then the role of public policymakers, in particular that the the balance between a federal solution and a federal um, um, uh, strategy versus a state strategy? Yeah, well, I think we've learned an awful lot over the past uh, four months. Uh, one thing we've learned is that. Uh, the that the federal system has actually given us uh, some tremendous advantages. Federalism has got a teaching function. Uh, we've learned how different states have responded to the crisis in different ways, and we've learned that some have been very successful, uh, others have not, did not been successful. It is pretty clear, for example, that on the basis of the raw data, uh, that Florida has actually done a better job than New York. Uh, the data shows that. It's uh, not even a debate now. Um, some of the some of our state officials have made some terrible decisions, perhaps because they simply do not understand the disease, and that is why ultimately, you know, the the answers to all of this is going to depend upon the medical profession uh, catching up with this and and figuring out exactly how to deal with it. But you know, I mean, we've seen a situation, we know now that, you know, I think something like 40 to 50 percent of the mort mortality from this disease is mortality for, from people who are very sick and in nursing homes. Uh, so we, we know that. I mean, that's, that's enough to know. So closing down or quarantining uh, communication or quarantining nursing homes obviously makes a lot of sense. Uh, they did not do that in New York. In fact, they were sending sick people into nursing homes for a while. And that had a negative effect on this. Uh, in Florida, they have been much more rational in their approach to this. So federalism, I think, enables us to see, you know, what works, especially in an area where the the responses are not entirely crystal clear about exactly what the public health response should be. The founders uh, of the American Republic, uh, you know, uh, they made a, a very very rational decision about policy making recognizing that states actually have could have uh, in a, could pursue different policies and we could learn from what works and what doesn't some states are innovative some states are not people ultimately get the government that uh, they deserve and that the government they voted for and the government they want however having said that uh, as a public policy matter in terms of public public health policy generally that uh, battles are being won in you know, on the ground in different states, uh, 
the ultimate fact here is, and I think it's been very it's been crystallized by Dr. Yadigar's work, and the work of other physicians, that uh, this is ultimately going to be won or lost in the uh, in the ICU. It's going to be won or lost in intensive care, and we have that's where the, the ultimate battle really is. And I think what it really means is public authorities have got to do everything they possibly can to give physicians the leeway to do what they think is best uh, and uh, at the same time promote as much as possible what Dr. Fitzgerald has been talking about, which is a, a free flow of information among clinicians to enable them to better understand the, the crisis that they're dealing with and respond appropriately. So it's, you know, on the ground in two places, on the ground in terms of public authority uh, in the states, uh, trying different things as public health. But ultimately, as a matter of medicine, you're dealing beyond public health. You're dealing with clinical uh, achievements. And that ultimately depends upon, uh, once again, the professionalism of, uh, of doctors, their ability to communicate with each other and to cooperate and collaborate and, and, and work to, to fight this disease. Wonderful. We have a question specifically for Dr. Yadigar. Uh, based on your experience, how would you rank um, different comorbidities in terms of their adverse outcomes among infected patients? Uh, that's a great question, and I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily rank them, but I would say that uh, definitely uh, congestive heart failure, um, COPD, diabetes, as well as obesity, um, those are probably the top four. Um, and, you know, those are the ones that I look for because it seems like those patients uh, do worse. And um, especially with obesity, there's been a lot of link with a hyperimmune and hyperimmune uh, system. Um, so that's one that I typically wasn't, wasn't on my radar as a critical care doctor, but for COVID-19 patients, um, I certainly look at their BMI and that goes into a factor uh, when I'm deciding, you know, is this someone that's at risk and, uh, or not? I have a question. If I, I just want to ask one question, and that is, this gets to the heart of why this is so critical for the general public. Um, in terms of your experience in the ICU, supervising 20 physicians dealing with this problem, um, how many patients, roughly, as a percentage, how many patients going into the ICU actually have, based on your testing, based on determining the markers, right? How many actually have this autoimmune response that is so deadly, roughly? Bob, I would say the vast majority of the patients that we had in the initial phase of it, where there were community, where there were healthy patients that were coming in, maybe they had diabetes, maybe they had obesity, but the vast majority that were coming into our ICU were due to the autoimmune, the immune-mediated process, and not necessarily the virus itself. Now, at this point, since we've had a shift and you know, 80, 90% of the people that I'm seeing in our hospital now are from nursing homes, and that kind of changes the dynamics. And those patients do come in because of the virus and you know, what the virus causes in terms of a COPD exacerbation or a congestive heart failure exacerbation. But, but the large majority of the patients that were initially seen in, our, in our, both of our ICUs were due to the immune-mediated. Um, and I would say probably 90 somewhat percent that were on ventilators, whereas due to the immune-mediated disease and not necessarily the virus. 
And that was uh, profoundly shocking. Dramatic information. Dr. Fitzgerald, this might be a good question for you. There has been discussion now about the nursing home situation across the country. Are there things that, um, that at the state level that should have been done or states should be doing to make sure that, that they begin to kind of put um, a cap on what's going on in the nursing homes and make sure that this doesn't continue to perpetuate the cycle? You might be on mute. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Um, and the and the problem, of course, in the nursing homes, it a, a lot of those patients are not healthy to begin with. Um, so for a lot of those patients, any kind of change or any kind of additional insult um, can result in uh, severe uh, morbidity or or death. Um, as just like Dr. Yadigar was talking about, uh, those patients really are a separate subset of patients. So we know that this virus is easily transmitted, and we know that if they get it, it can be deadly because they already have pre-existing conditions. So the states really need to step up um, their, um, their oversight of nursing homes and make sure that they're, I mean, it's, we know how, we basically know how this uh, disease is transmitted. Um, it is uh, transmitted by droplet. Uh, so we know that face shields and masks and gloves, because we know it can survive on, um, on inanimate objects, uh, we know that. So if we have, if we go into nursing homes, and one, we really need to, de we need to decrease or absolutely regulate people who come in to visit nursing homes. And then we need to absolutely regulate the people who are working in nursing homes so that we, we know how it's transmitted. Um, and I think that with that, we can get we can get a handle on the disease in the nursing homes. Nina, if I can um, also add to Dr. Fitzgerald's uh, comments, uh, very early on in our process, um, we're, there's a Jewish home for the aging, which is a very large uh, nursing home that's uh, within a few miles of our hospital. Uh, Dr. Marco Noah, who's their CMO, reached out to me very early on to kind of um, ask me what, what we should be doing, what, what we should have done. And uh, they started a very, very rigorous uh, screening process for all of their nursing, all of the staff. They also put in a very strict limitation in terms of their visitors. And uh, they have hundreds and hundreds of patients that they take care of, whether they're in assisted living, whether they're in nursing. And they've only had a, a few handful of patients that have, that have acquired it versus other smaller nursing homes in the area have had large outbreaks of 20, 30 uh, you know, percent of their patients developing uh, COVID-19. So it, it really makes a difference in terms of what is done. Um, you know, I, I've spoken to other nursing homes where you know, they don't have the PPEs for their, for their nurses. And uh, we've seen a lot of uh, outbreaks in nurses in those uh, institutions as well as their CNAs um, that help take care of the patients. So as Dr. Fitzgerald said, this is a very, very contagious virus, and you know we need to treat it on all fronts. And uh, what happens in the community is not necessarily the same thing that's happening in a, in our local nursing homes. So we need to have a two-front approach to 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 treating and taking care of those patients and preventing it from spreading. Thank you. 
Great. Um, this is, I don't know if you guys have a comment, but it was a curious question for me. Um, with all the different treatments going on out there, are, are there any concerns about um, liability for wrongful treatment that you're concerned about moving forward with things moving so quickly and, and doctors really practicing on their feet? Um, are you concerned about that? Is there anything you think that could be done to, to make sure um, physicians are, are protected from that? Um, from a from a doctor on the front line and and speaking to other doctors, uh, that was absolutely one of their concerns. Um, doctors did not want to initiate any therapy that was not part of a randomized control study uh, from an NIH or um, a guideline that was handed down by CDC. Uh, from my own personal perspective, I, I did not give a single medication to a single patient until I understood the disease process. Um, and even then, uh, when I started understanding the disease process, I made sure that I informed the patient. I made sure that I informed the patient's family. Um, I also obtained uh, other physicians, um, rheumatologists, hematologists that were not part of our core team to help guide uh, the therapy. So uh, yes, it's something that's definitely out there and there is a fear and there is a concern. But from my, my perspective, you know, I'm a physician, above all, I, I have to treat the patient. And if I understand the disease, disease process and I understand how to treat the patient and it's not going to harm them, um, I don't understand how I couldn't withhold therapy. I think from my perspective, that's that's a worse evil um, than, to, to, than to give therapy. So I try to make sure that everyone is as informed as possible and um, only treat those patients that need it. And again, we've had 260 patients that have been admitted to our hospital, but you know, I would say out of those 260 patients, probably only about 40 or 50 have been treated with the, these types of parodies. We're not blanketly giving it to everyone that comes in. Um, and I think that's one of the problems with the, with the randomized control studies is that they're not differentiating um, between the COVID-19 where the virus is attacking them versus the COVID-19 patients where the immune system is attacking them. And that's why we're seeing all these randomized control studies not produce any positive effects. But you're right, Dina, about one particular thing. And this is a new virus. When it says it's a novel virus, that means we haven't seen this one before. So it is impossible to have an apps. I mean, we can start with what we think our understanding is, like we started with our understanding that this was a totally, solely viral uh, respiratory disease. But we have no knowledge about treating this disease before. So there ha there, inevitably there will, be, there will be things that we have to learn by trial and error. And that's again why it is so important to have this national conversation because the national conversation, we can take the 200 uh, patients in your hospital and the 1,000 patients in a New York hospital and, you know, the, the patients all over the country accelerate our understanding of the disease. Very, very important. That's great, because it leads into another question, which is, what are medical professional societies doing or should they be doing to organize and facilitate this exchange of information? Uh, 
I think. Uh, I um, go ahead. No, go ahead, Brenda. I'm sorry. Uh, I think that we simply need to have um, uh, uh, them do it. Um, I mean, it, this is a just do it situation. Whether it's done by the CDC, which I think would be fabulous, whether it's done uh, by the AMA, um, I think that would be fine. There needs to be a national entity that steps up and said, okay, we'll take this on. We will make sure uh, that, um, that we um, get this conversation going and we keep it going. And I know certainly from the infectious disease people here in my, in my hometown, uh, they would welcome that. Uh, because right now, um, we really, again, this is a new disease. It's been in our country for four months. Uh, it was in the information we have coming out of China um, is not that much older. Um, so we really need to have a national discussion. I'd absolutely support the AMA doing it. I would support the, um, the CDC doing it. Uh, I just think there needs to be a national discussion. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, Brenda. Um, there's definitely a hunger, a thirst, and a desire to, to have best practice guidelines. Now, we're not going to have randomized control studies, so we're not going to have protocols, but, but we should have best practice guidelines. And I think it would alleviate a lot of the physician um, positions on the front lines and a lot of their concern about you know, malpractice and, and, and practicing you know, uh, on their own if there was uh, an entity, whether it's CDC, uh, you know, AMA, where they can produce a best practice guideline, a living guideline, because, you know, again, over the past six weeks that, that we have been treated this patient, we have been treating these patients, it really changes because, again, it needs to be individualized therapy. There isn't a one-size-fits-all. So if, if there was a large entity, a large organization um, that came out with the best practice guidelines, I think that that would really be helpful to us frontline doctors. What I was going to say is there is some good news here in the sense that there seems to be a growing understanding of this. Um, back uh, when Dr. Yadigar, if my re recollection is correct, uh, Dr. Yadigar was talking about this uh, with us in early April, uh, but Lancet came out with a, uh, a disease uh, progression discussion, which was virtually identical. And the same thing was happening with doctors in Virginia who were coming up with the same uh, findings with regard to COVID-19 and the autoimmune response. Um, the problem is, and I think Dr. Fitzgerald points this out very well, we can't depend upon, you know, uh, we can't depend upon articles in professional journals to give us direction in the midst of a national crisis. We've got to be able to move much faster than that. It's great that Lancet came out with a like, Thank God, you know, that Lancet came out with that um, outline that basically confirmed what Dr. Yadigar was telling us. Uh, but, um, you know, we have to have a much, much more um, rapid and flexible response in the midst of a crisis. And I think with the medical profession, perhaps a combination or a partnership between the medical profession and CDC, we can maybe design a protocol, not for this particular disease, but a, a protocol that uh, can enable members of the uh, medical profession and clinical practice to be able to move quickly with some assurance that there is uh, a corporate strength behind them when they're starting to move in this direction. Because 
obviously we can't wait for randomized <laughs> randomized uh, studies you know in the midst of a in the midst of a national emergency it doesn't work well we have um time i think for two questions and one is a very technical question that dr yadigar has been directed at you um and then we have a general question that we'll wrap up the panel with Dr. Yadigar, if you're comfortable, here's the question. Do you use prednisone in the ICU for the immune, immune response? And do you use, I might mispronounce this, um, glutathione, which cools off the immune system? Can you comment on that? Uh, sure, of course. Uh, we did uh, try to use a, um, IV corticosteroids, prednisone um, being an oral form of it. And uh, we really didn't see much of a response. This is uh, the immune mediated is um, acting through uh, T cells, which are a little bit different, and they don't respond to the, it's the they're not steroid responsive. Um, that's why you've heard of all these other uh, medications such as uh, interleukin-6, which are really inhibiting the, the, the cytokines um, that these T cells produce. Um, this is a self-directed uh, and feeding uh, loop so if you can slow down the cytokines that these cells produce, then hopefully the process will kind of wind down by itself. Um, if you don't, then it just kind of feeds itself and just goes on forever and ever in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a small minority of the patients. And uh, no, we, I have not used uh, glutathione, and I, I uh, comments on, on that. Okay, so our last wrap-up question, I think, is very appropriate. Um, as we said, we have medical professionals on, the, on this um, webinar, but we also have a lot of um, Americans who are just interested in what's happening in this area. And so one of the questions that has come in is, what, and it's a good reminder for all of us, what can we do as states are beginning to open up? What can people do um, in their day, daily lives to help um, in this situation? And um, how can we best make sure that as we are opening up carefully that we are taking responsibility and really being self-aware of what we're doing? First of all, um, even though we are increasing our um, activities outside the home, we certainly need to remember that this is indeed a uh, a disease that is very infectious, easy to catch, and we need to keep up those things like face coverings, wear gloves when you go to the grocery store, um, wash your hands, all those kinds of things that we've been talking about before. Those, even though we open up, we need to absolutely continue that because this is a very infectious disease. Wonderful. Dr. Yadgar, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I would. Um, I think, you know, the one thing is that, as this has been said over and over, this is a local disease. It happens in clusters. So even within a city, um, there will be areas that are hit harder than other areas. And we really need to have our local officials um, be very, very in tuned with our hospital systems. Um, the two most important factors in terms of opening up, um, you know, the country is one to try to decrease the rate where this is this virus is you know, passed on, and as Dr. Fitzgerald said, it's incredibly contagious. So that that's the first thing is, you know, when we see that there's an outbreak, we need to be able to quickly move to kind of, um, you know, stop it from further uh, propagating. And then second thing, and probably equally as important, 
is to make sure that when there is an outbreak, the hospitals in that local area are not going to become overwhelmed. The quickest way to raise a patient's mortality numbers is to keep an ICU patient in the emergency room. Our emergency room uh, are excellent. They're great at, our physicians are amazing. They've been on the front line. They're great at triaging. They're great at treating these patients, but you don't want the hospital to get overwhelmed and you don't want these critically ill patients to stay in the emergency room for days and days. That's the quickest way to increase their mortality numbers. So as long as we have those two focuses where we try to cut down the transmission and then make sure that the hospitals in those local areas are not overwhelmed, you know, I think we can do this in a smart way and continue to save lives. I would just simply add that uh, I have nothing to add to the quality of that conversation except to say this, that uh, we know enough about the virus now to exercise common sense. The data shows that overwhelmingly the most uh, vulnerable people are those who are over the age of 65 and who suffer certain comorbidities, respiratory, pulmonary, cardiac uh, conditions, as well as obesity and diabetes, we know. So therefore, public health authorities should really focus on protecting those groups as much as possible. Um, they, at the same time, uh, generally speaking, I think that we should recognize the fact that uh, younger people, generally speaking, who are in good health without comorbidities, should have the opportunity to go back to work. And um, many of them will be able to, to uh, weather this storm. They'll be able to, um, you know, be able to, to, to work and, uh, and not be faced with uh, death as an option. Uh, at the same time, they've got to recognize that they've got to take care of their fellow citizens who are older, those who are uh, vulnerable, those who are over 65, certainly. Well, I want to thank our speakers for sharing their time and their really valuable insights. It's been an amazing discussion. Um, as I tried to navigate through the questions, uh, if I didn't get to your questions, don't worry. We'll be passing on those thoughts and insights onto the virtual clinical cabinet, um, and hopefully it will help inform some of their work moving forward. Um, in the meantime, if you um, are interested, you can get more information about the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission at heritage.org slash coronavirus. And uh, I just want to conclude by saying again, thank you for joining us. And we will end this, this webinar um, now at this point. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. Thank you.